Hello and Happy New Year from all of us at Stories of Our Times. As a little gift for 2024, we're bringing you an episode on what feels like a national obsession. Not the weather, not the footy, but sleep and how we can get more of it. Recent polls show that 89% of people in the UK say their lives would be improved if they could just sleep more. But while we know that a lack of sleep is incredibly bad for your health, there's still a lot about what happens when you sleep that science doesn't fully understand. The tools that we have to track sleep properly were not around in the 80s even. They certainly weren't around 100 years ago. And there are some conflicting results. Today, we've consulted a doctor who's at the forefront of investigating the secret world of sleep. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the secrets to a good night's sleep. I'm Guy Leshsoner. I'm a professor of neurology and sleep medicine, and I'm based at Guy's and St Thomas's across the road. Very handy to have a sleep specialist in, because it is something that I think most people now obsess about. What drew you to focusing on sleep? Well, I was always fascinated by the brain. I remember even as a school kid being fascinated by the brain and being asked at university to write an essay on on why we sleep, what the function of sleep is, what the function of dreaming is. And it was amazing how little was known. And so I guess that started my initial curiosity. And then over the course of my medical training, I became drawn more and more into the weird and wonderful world of sleep. That is fascinating because I think it's a question we all have. Why do we sleep and how much do we know about that? Just tell us, so when you first wrote this essay, when you were at university, how much was known then and how much has changed more recently? Well, I think relatively little was known then. Relatively little is still known now. But, (laughs) you know, in comparison to then, we know a lot more about sleep. And it seems that at least one of the functions of sleep, one of the functions of normal sleep, is to allow us to acquire new information and also for general housekeeping of the brain as well. So it's the brain processing. Basically. Without all the distractions that you have during the day. Yeah, essentially you are offline. You're offline from your environment, which allows you to cleanse your hard drive. It's time for an update. Sort of. We now are beginning to understand that the question of why we sleep is much more complex and that sleep seems to have a fundamental role in pretty much every aspect of our waking lives, from regulating our immune function to regulating our memory and our mood, to regulating our our growth, for example. So it's likely that actually that circadian rhythm, that 24-hour rhythm, originated very early on in life. And I don't mean human life, I mean in any life on this earth. And so it's likely that over the course of evolution, certain patterns of behaviour arose and certain functions were shoehorned into this period of the night or day whenever that organism is exhibiting that particular pattern indicative of sleep that allowed 
us to develop. And so over time, more and more functions have been taken up by the brain that relate to sleep. Wow. And those circadian rhythms, when the world was all about sort of the movements of the sun and that's how we all lived, that sort of all obviously predates the era of artificial light, computer screens, shift work, Mm. and the way we live now. You must see a lot of that. And one of the things you do is run a sleep clinic. Just tell us a bit about that. What exactly is a sleep clinic? And how does it work? Who comes to one? So obviously, the, the biggest problem for the modern world is insomnia. But surprisingly, actually, most people with insomnia don't need a sleep study. So primarily, the sleep clinic that we run is geared towards individuals who might need a sleep study. So what a sleep study entails is coming in overnight, having electrodes attached to your scalp to record your brain waves, and that's how we characterise sleep, and then looking at a range of other biological parameters like breathing, heart rate, movement. And those kinds of studies are primarily geared towards individuals who have sleep apnea or sleepwalking or acting out their dreams, or conditions like narcolepsy, because those are the individuals in whom sleep studies are really helpful in terms of ascertaining their underlying diagnosis. I imagine that isn't easy, sort of turning up and trying to sleep when you're you're linked up to so many different machines. Well, that's another reason why people with insomnia don't regularly (laughs) get sleep studies, because if you've got very bad insomnia, then the likelihood of coming into a strange hospital room being covered in wires, having a video camera watching you, and then being told, well, try and sleep is nigh on impossible. No, that doesn't sound easy. So what sort of people have you seen in the sleep clinic? What are the cases that really sort of stay with you? Well, I think a huge range of of individuals. So people who, for example, do some very odd things at night. I've seen individuals who have dismantled and rewired television sets in the middle of the night. In their sleep? In their sleep. I've seen people who have ridden a motorbike uh, without any recollection in their sleep. And then, you know, we see a, a real variety of other conditions like, for example, narcolepsy, which is an incredibly debilitating condition whereby people will find it virtually impossible to stabilise whether they're awake or asleep. So they'll have very frequent naps during the day. They'll hallucinate as they drift off to sleep. They'll experience something called sleep paralysis, which is when they wake up and they feel wide awake, but they're completely paralysed and unable to move. So some of these neurological disorders are of huge importance and significance in terms of the impact that they have on individuals to live their daily lives. You do sort of start to get a sense of just how important sleep is to general health when you look at extreme cases like that. But what happens when you don't get enough of it? We've known for a while that there is an association between how much you sleep on average and your overall mortality risk. Over time, we've begun to understand a little bit more detail about that. So, for example, chronic sleep deprivation is associated with changes to our cardiovascular system, putting us at risk of high blood pressure, for example, increase our risk of diabetes and and something called metabolic syndrome, which is this association between obesity, diabetes and high blood pressure. We know that poor sleep increases risk of things like stroke and A lot of people will be aware of this increased interest surrounding the association between sleep deprivation and dementia or cognitive decline. Now, I think that 
one of the potential answers as to why that might be the case is that we know that particularly in the deeper stages of sleep, there is an important housekeeping role for small channels within the brain that are thought to be responsible for removing toxins or chemical products that have built up over the course of the waking day. And if you're not sleeping enough, if you're not getting enough deep sleep, then that impairs the removal of those substances from the brain. So these are all areas that are really rapidly developing in terms of our knowledge. I suppose a lot of your patients probably ask you, you know, if, if that's why the body needs to sleep, why is it that more and more we find we can't? First of all, it's important to say that insomnia is incredibly common. About 30% of adults in any one year will experience a, a period of insomnia. And about 10% of the adult population experience chronic insomnia. So that's ongoing regular insomnia for more than three months at a time. It's a huge problem. I think that it's also important to understand that there are different contributors to insomnia, that insomnia is not the same condition in everyone. Mm. So for the vast majority of people with insomnia, actually, if you do do a sleep study, if you do record their sleep, and you usually have to give them more than one night of this because the first night they won't sleep, then actually the vast majority of people with insomnia actually don't sleep that much less than normal individuals. Really? Yeah, they feel like it. And, you know, one of the... Potential explanations for that is that, and this has been suggested by a study that was done a few years ago, is that actually whilst the whole of the brain or the whole of the brain is asleep, there is one particular part of the brain that exhibits some waking behaviour and that part of the brain may be responsible for awareness for consciousness. And so th th this is a condition that used to be called sleep state misperception. It's now referred to as paradoxical insomnia. And I have seen somebody very recently who is absolutely convinced that he's not slept for two years. And, you know, recent sleep studies show that he's sleeping for more than seven hours a night. So, you know, there is a degree of sleep state misperception with all of us. We're all very poor witnesses to our own sleep. There is, of course, a hardcore of individuals who actually do sleep very little, that when mm. we record their sleep, they're sleeping three, four or five hours a night. And that's a very different entity. So... We think that in the majority of, of individuals, one of the problems is that people enter into a particular state surrounding the night, which we term hypervigilance or hyperarousal. So this is when people are on high alert, mm. you know, alert for a threat, which I think explains why insomnia is often associated with conditions like anxiety, because anxiety is characterised by a perception of threat. That's not to say that everybody with insomnia has got anxiety or depression. We know that it affects about 50% of people with insomnia. But certainly there are similarities in terms of the physiological and the psychological state that individuals are in. Essentially, everything is on. You're yeah. on high alert at the time when you should be anything but on high alert, when you should be sleeping. And from an evolutionary perspective, of course, if you are feeling threatened, if you're on high alert, then the last thing you want to do is go to sleep because that increases your risk. But in the long term, that's a very destructive yeah. pattern. And when a patient comes to you and says, I haven't slept for two years, I mean, presumably you know that can't be true, but yeah. what is the longest time you can go without sleeping before it really starts to mess up your body? We think that probably people can go for 
somewhere between about 15 and 30 days without sleep. But it's important to understand that actually, you know, this issue of the whole of the brain not sleeping at the same time is related to all of us. And actually, one of the real leaps forward over the last decade is a a move away from considering sleep a global brain phenomenon to something called local sleep, which is that little islands of the cerebral cortex, the outer lining of our brains, are constantly dipping in and out of sleep, even whilst we're wide awake. And so when you say, well, how long can you go without sleep? It's likely that if you're sleep deprived enough, there are probably little areas of the brain that are dipping in and out of sleep and that you're having something called microsleeps, which is very, you know, very, very brief uh, doses. So I think we don't have the proper answer to that either. So that's how long you can go without sleeping. If you're trying to have a healthy routine, I mean, how long should you be aiming for per night? What's the prescription? Uh, So there isn't one prescription because we know that your sleep requirement is related to two things. It's related to your genetics. So we know that there are common variants in our genes that influence, and it's also related to whether or not you've got anything else going on with your sleep. So, for example, if you've got sleep apnea, this is the condition whereby people are snoring very loudly, they're collapsing Mm. their airway, and they're constantly waking themselves up. That will make your sleep requirement much more because your sleep is being disrupted, sometimes up to 100 times an hour. So it's a combination of of your genetics, your age, because our requirement changes as we age, and whether or not we've got anything else going on with our sleep. But if you look at overall adult populations, it's probably somewhere of the region of about seven to eight hours a night. That's the recommended. Yeah. And when you say our, our need for it changes as we age, I mean, do you need less as you get older? Well, certainly that's the case when you kind of reach through early adulthood and go into, into middle age. It's likely that this commonly held view that as we get much older, we need less sleep is incorrect. It's just that oh, really? our brains are less good at maintaining sleep. The circuitry that stabilises sleep becomes weakened as we reach old age. And so actually, it's probably the case that you need as much sleep when you're 80 as you did when you're 50. It's just you're much less able to get it. Coming up, if you've ever tossed and turned and watched the clock counting down the hours before you have to be up again, then we have tips that might just help. That's in just a moment. Now, Guy, I don't know how much you follow celebrity culture but there was one story recently which I assume would have cut through even in the world of sleep neuroscience and that was an interview in which Cameron Diaz said that she wants to normalize the idea of couples sleeping in separate bedrooms is she on to something I mean does that is that something that stops people sleeping do you get a better quality of sleep when you're sleeping alone I must admit I missed that story so um, (laughs) I'm shocked (laughs) well I you know look I'm hoping there's going to be a study on this soon (laughs) I think that I'm slightly biased because of the individuals that I see you know I see people who are snoring terribly loudly who are 
acting out their dreams, who are shouting and screaming at night. And obviously, for my patients, I think the quality of their partner's sleep would be infinitely improved if they were sleeping in separate rooms, and indeed they often do. I, I suspect there is an element of truth in that, that people would probably sleep better if they slept in separate bedrooms, but at what cost? Very good question. And are there sort of particular things in terms of your diet, for example, that you should be doing if you're worried that you're not getting enough sleep? Yeah. So obviously the biggest issue is caffeine. Mm. So people often underestimate how long caffeine hangs around. Yeah, what's the latest when you should have a coffee? So I think it depends how much coffee you're having. Certainly there's at least one paper that suggests that even a single coffee should not be taken within eight hours of sleep onset. And if you have, for example, five or six coffees and you stop drinking at midday, then you will still have a sizable amount of caffeine floating around your system. But I generally tend to recommend that you should not consume any caffeine after about two o'clock in the afternoon. Now, of course, there are some individuals for whom caffeine has no impact whatsoever on their sleep, and they can drink an espresso before bed and quite happily sleep through the night. So again, it points to this difficulty of trying to reduce sleep to a one-size-fits-all. What about alcohol? Because I imagine some people probably sleep better in January anyway because there's sort of this dry January. People have at least one week, maybe two, where they exercise a bit more than normal. What are the things that would make you sleep better? Is it alcohol? Is it exercise? Yeah, alcohol is a poison for sleep. So. Although Some people think it, it helps them. Sleep. Yes. If you have insomnia, then I do see a number of individuals who rely heavily on alcohol to try and help them get off to sleep. The problem is, is it makes the quality of sleep much poorer. It has a direct chemical effect on the brain. But also, if you're a snorer, it's likely to tip you over into sleep apnea. You'll have a full bladder at night, which is not going to be particularly good for your sleep quality. And if, for example, you're a sleepwalker or doing one of these other odd things at night, that's likely to make that worse as well. So certainly when we put people through treatment for insomnia, we tend to suggest that they cut out alcohol altogether. Mm. And does exercise help? There is good evidence that particularly aerobic exercise will improve the quality of your sleep. It'll increase the proportion of deep sleep. I'm desperately taking tips here. So, I mean, yeah. if you were trying to recommend to somebody who doesn't have, you know, any of the the sort of the real extreme problems that you see in your clinic, but just sort of occasionally struggles to to get through the night, what can you do? What should you do if you're just having one of those nights when you're watching the clock and it's sort of, it's suddenly it's one and then it's two and you're still not asleep and you don't know why? What would you recommend? One of the big issues that I see in clinic is that people start getting very anxious about the fact that they can't sleep. They start getting frustrated. And obviously, the more anxious, the more frustrated you are, the more difficult it is to to manage to get off to sleep. So in that situation, rather than trying to get to sleep and lying in bed and letting that anxiety build, is actually to remove yourself from bed, to go and sit in a slightly different room, making sure that the lights are not very bright and that you're not doing something that's increasingly stimulating and then trying to go to bed again once you feel sleepy. And quite frankly, the brain is a miraculous thing. If you go for one or two nights with very poor sleep, nothing terrible is going to happen to you. It's when this becomes an ingrained habit that becomes a big issue. Mm. If you're one of these individuals who has the odd bad night, then 
actually making sure that the behavior surrounding sleep is optimized is the important thing. And that is often referred to by this horrible term called sleep hygiene, which is... What sleep hygiene? Well, sleep, sleep hygiene really defines the rules for good sleep. And it's things like not consuming caffeine and making sure that your bed is for sleep and nothing else. So avoiding watching something on your mobile phone or working on your laptop in Ah. bed because what you're trying to do is you're trying to reinforce the connection in your own mind between bed and sleep and nothing else. So exercise during the day, avoiding bright lights in the evening, having a wind down period, perhaps a warm bath. and Does temperature make a difference? Yeah, so we know that temperature is quite important to many people in terms of their sleep quality and People generally tend to say that the optimal temperature for the bedroom is somewhere around 18 or 19 degrees. But clearly, once again, one size doesn't fit all. And Mm. if you are like, for example, my wife, who is very, very cold intolerant, (laughs) then that might not work for her. A lot of people who worry about how much they sleep, it's partly because lifestyle now, you know, as you say, people have their phones in their beds, they're working in odd hours. It's also because an awful lot of people seem to have sleep apps, which make them very aware, they're trackers on, on their wrist or, you know, mm-hmm. on their watch, make them very aware of how much they've slept and make them worry about whether they've slept enough. What do you make of those? Well, from my own perspective, I think they're horrible because... Do you use one? I, d- I don't use one. Um, banned I, in the household. They are. The majority of individuals who use these kinds of sleep trackers are already quite anxious about their sleep. And all that they achieve is actually making people more focused on their sleep, more anxious about their sleep. So if you're using it as part of a sort of general fitness tracking device and you don't really have any issues with your sleep, then out of interest, why not? But if you are genuinely concerned about sleep, if you've genuinely got a problem with insomnia, I would say that these are the tools of the devil. And in (laughs) fact, there has been a, a term ascribed to this kind of phenomenon, which is orthosomnia, where people actually diagnose themselves with sleep conditions as a result of the output of their sleep tracker, or their sleep tracker actually makes their sleep worse. Oh, wow. So they wouldn't have been worried about it before. That does sound awful. And if you are worried about your sleep and you're looking at your tracker and it looks like you haven't had enough, can you make up for it? Can you make up for it in with a nap in the afternoon? Is that as helpful as having a full night's sleep? Well, I think there are some very clear benefits to napping that have been demonstrated in, you know, and they're usually Spanish or Greek studies, so they have a vested interest. (laughs) Should we introduce a siesta (laughs) in this country? Well, there have been some studies that have shown that, for example, a, a siesta is very good for your afternoon blood pressure. I think that if you are needing to nap on a regular basis, then you need to be asking yourself why. Okay, so most people with insomnia, because they have difficulty getting off to sleep, regardless of whether it's day or night, they will feel very sleepy, they'll feel very tired. But if they're actually given the opportunity to nap during the day, they will be unable to do so. So they'll try and nap and then they'll lie awake in bed. So if you're having to nap very regularly during the day, then that really suggests that either there is an issue with your sleep quality that's not related to insomnia or you're simply not getting enough sleep. 
A lot of people who feel that they are sleep deprived during the week assure themselves that they can catch up for it at the weekend and, you know, we'll sort of have these sort of droughts and then huge bursts of trying to make up for it with a weekend in bed almost. Is that healthy? There have been some very good studies that have demonstrated that if you are sufficiently sleep deprived during the week and you're given unlimited sleep opportunities at the weekend, then you may not actually be catching up for the sleep debt that you've accrued over the course of the week. And there seems to be a difference between your perception of sleepiness Mm. and your mental performance. So it may be that you go back to work on Monday and you don't feel sleepy because you've paid back that aspect of your sleep debt, but your mental performance might still be significantly impaired. So, you know, obviously, if you are only sleep deprived by an hour or so during the week, the likelihood is that you will catch up at the weekends. But if you're really pushing it, if you're really burning the candle at both ends during the week, then a weekend is not going to be sufficient to repay your sleep debt. And in a clinical setting, so for example, if we're trying to work out whether or not somebody is very sleepy during the day as a result of chronic sleep deprivation or whether they may have a condition like narcolepsy, we really ask them to sleep as much as they can for a two-week period because it can take up to two weeks to fully repay back a sleep debt. Really? That's fascinating. Is it just that we feel like we're sleeping worse now or is there something about this particular moment in time, this you know, the generation, the way we're living? Is sleep just worse? The short answer is we don't really know because the tools that we have to track sleep properly were not around in the 80s even. They certainly weren't around 100 years ago. Mm. And there are some conflicting results if you look at the amount of time recorded in bed. So certainly there have been some studies that have suggested that our amount of sleep opportunity has lessened. There have been some conflicting studies. But you also have to remember that sleep now is not in the same environment as it was 100 years ago. You know, 100 years ago, we didn't all have, you know, our foam-filled orthopaedic mattresses in centrally (laughs) heated houses with feather duvets. And so it is likely that, you know, what has been given with one hand in terms of comfort, has probably been taken away with another hand in terms of our lifestyles, in terms of environmental light and in terms of the stress of our day-to-day lives. Do you sleep well? Um, Put it this way, I have some sympathy for some of my patients because I know (laughs) what it's like to occasionally sleep very badly. That makes all of us. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manvin Rana, and my guest, Professor of Neurology and Sleep Medicine, Dr Guy Leschziner. And if you want to explore more of his fascinating work, Dr Leschziner has written a book on all of this called The Secret World of Sleep, Journeys Through the Nocturnal Mind. I can't recommend it enough. The producer today was Priyanka Deladia. The executive producer was James Shield. And sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year again.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.